Okay, I'm going to go ahead and mute all. Okay, so today we're going to talk about two topics. We're going to go through the Torah portion, and I'm going to discuss why all the drama in this story. There is so much drama with what happens with Joseph and his brothers and his father and his grandfather. And then later what happens with his master and then he's thrown into prison. All this stuff that's going on, why? Why the drama? You know, why, why the shortest line between two points is a straight line. Why is God taking such detours in the story of bringing Jacob and his family down to Egypt? And then we're also going to relate this to the Hanukkah story. Okay, so let's go ahead. This week's Torah portion is called Miketz, and it means at the end of. And why is it at the end of? So because in last week's Torah portion, we ended off with Joseph interpreting the dream for the wine merchant and telling him that when you do get reinstalled and you will be next to Pharaoh, please tell him that there is an innocent man here in prison. And, um, and please help me out. And the last thing it says is that he forgot. The wine merchant forgot Joseph, never mentioned Joseph. And therefore, two years later, there's an event taking place. Now, I want to just share with you. Rashi tells us, of Shlomo Yitzchaki, French 11th century commentator, the, like the father of all commentators, always focused on the simple interpretation, not homiletics, not mysticism, not Talmudic, not legal, just learning with the pure child, the pure definition and meanings of the scriptures. That's what he did. So he tells us something very interesting. He says, why does the verse say it was the end of two years? I mean, it should have just said two years later. It, it seems to be like there, it had to be two years. And he explains that Joseph was punished. And why was Joseph punished? Because Joseph, instead of relying on God, um, went and he used, he used uh, the, the wine merchant. You know, he's trying to get ways to be able to do this. Now, in this group is a man I am very fond of, and I'm not gonna make him blush, but Arnold is with us. And Arnold told me a most amazing line when he and I were talking. He said, in life, you have to work on it as if it all depends on you and have faith as if it all depends on God. And everyone knows that very famous story of the guy who got stuck on the island and he was drowning, the water was rising, and he prayed to God, and along came the U-boats, and he said, no, 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 I believe in God. And then along came the helicopters, no, 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 I believe in God. And then when he died, he asked God, I had such faith in you, why didn't you rescue me? And God said, who do you think sent the U-boats and sent the helicopters? And that is very Jewish. For one to say that, nah, I trust in God, let God do it. You know, in Judaism, and especially in the Hasidic teachings, they're very focused that the line between faith and recklessness is very thin. So the question is, 
Why was Joseph punished? It was Joseph's responsibility to use any natural ways that he could to get out of jail, especially that the Talmud rules that God never does a miracle in vain. If the miracle isn't needed, the miracle isn't performed. So if there's a natural events that can lead up to it, then don't ask God to do miracles. On top of that, let's go back two weeks ago when Jacob is preparing where, for meeting Esau. Didn't he also use natural events? Didn't he shower upon Esau, gifts upon gifts to soften his heart? Didn't he separate his entire group, his entire family and belongings in two parts so that one can run away while the other is hit. Yes, he also prayed, but he also used natural causes, and he wasn't punished. So why is Joseph being punished? This is a huge question that is asked. And the answer I received from one of my mentors, blessed memory, Richard Springer, he said that he heard from his mentor, famous Chassid, a man by the name of Peretz Muchkin, and he said like this, I'm going to share you the words in Yiddish, and then I'll translate them. Yosef hot gahat atalant, um fapaterin atalant zitzman. Yosef had a gift, and for wasting a gift, one sits, meaning he does time. And what did he explain? Joseph's power was that he was able to rise above it all. And therefore, for a man of his spiritual stature, he didn't need to go so far as to ask the wine merchant to intercede. I want to share what this means. What this means is, that our job in life is two things. A, to make vessels to receive God's blessings, and B, to realize that our vessels are but vessels, and as the verse says, Birkat Hashem asher. It is the blessings of God that make us wealthy. Now, I want to share with you a story. The founder of the entire Hasidic movement we're talking about nine generations ago, was the great and holy Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Yisrael, the son of Eliezer, and he was called the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name. And he was once with his students, and he said he has to go earn a living, so he walked out, walked to the shutters of one of the houses, knocked on the shutter, and he walked away. So his students asked him, Rebbe, if you're going to say that you need to make physical vessels, then what do you knock on the window and walk away? Knock, wait till the person comes, talk to the person. And if you're saying that a man of your stature doesn't have to make vessels, then why do you even knock on the on the shutters of this man's window. And the Baal Shem Tov answered, it is God's will that 
everyone makes physical vessels, conduits, and possibilities. But how much effort you need to put into your vessels and how focused you need to be on your vessels depends very much on what level of faith you have. And he answered, for me, I have to make a vessel because that's the will of God. But my faith is strong enough that the minute I made the slightest vessel, that was enough for me. Now I can go back to my spiritual life. And that's why, you know, we have to wear clothes. But clothes that are too short are not okay. And clothes that are too long are not okay. We can only function if we wear clothes that is our size. The clothing is the vessels. To have clothing that are too short and too tight and too small for you isn't going to work. To have clothing that is too large on you, you're going to trip and fall and just be consumed into the world of the rat race. So you need to know yourself and we need to know what the vessels we have to make. Not over obsessive and overindulgence and not reckless. And that is what happened with Yosef. So therefore the verse says it was the end of two years because God decreed, because he relied on the wine merchant, God decreed that he was going to have to wait two more years before his redemption happened. Another thing I want to share with you, a lot of people don't know this, that if you follow the story, what was the story? The story was that Joseph was released. On what day of the year was he released? And our sages, they figure it out. They have proof from the verses and from the hand-me-downs that he was released on Rosh Hashanah on the the, the Jewish New Year. Okay. And then he was brought to Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh had a dream. Now, what was the dream of Pharaoh? So he had one dream that there were seven very well, healthy, built cows. And then after them arose seven very skinny, horrible-looking cows. And this was all from the Nile River. Mind you that the Nile River was the source of all sustenance for Egypt because they didn't rely on the rainwater. They irrigated their fields from the Nile. And also that's why the Nile served for them as an idol. And right there, the skinny cows eat up the fat cows. And there's a point in the dream that says, and the skinny cows didn't gain any weight. And he wakes up and he's very bothered by this. He falls back asleep and he has a second dream. And the second dream is that there's seven stalks next to the Nile River. Seven healthy looking, well filled out stalks. And then comes out another seven stalks of wheat, which look horrific. And here too, the seven horrific stalks swallowed up the, the seven good stalks, the heavy, zafting, 
um, complete and then filled stalks. And again, the stalks, the bad stalks don't widen. And Taro wakes up and he knows that there's something wrong here. He calls all his khartumim, all his, uh, the stargazers and the magicians and the sorcerers. And he says, interpret this dream for me. Now the verse says, and they did not interpret it for Pharaoh. And Rashi says, why does it say the extra word lipato for Pharaoh? It should have just said, and they couldn't interpret it. So from here we learn out they did give interpretations, but Pharaoh didn't accept any of them. And now let's turn to what our sages tell us in the Talmud, in the Medrash, what were the interpretations they were giving and why didn't Pharaoh accept them? So I'll just give you one example. One said that the dream is telling you that you're going to have seven daughters and they're all going to die. And our sages say, why didn't Pharaoh accept this? And Pharaoh said, God is not communicating to me as an individual. The reason God is communicating to me is as a king, he's telling me what's going to happen, not to me, but to the nation. Hence, your interpretations, which is about my personal life, isn't the right interpretation. And at that moment, when the wine merchant sees that no one is interpreting it, all of a sudden he remembers he knows someone who interprets dreams correctly because he witnessed Joseph interpret his dream correctly and the baker's dream correctly. And he tells Pharaoh that when I, when I was put in prison, I had met over there Joseph who interpreted my dream and my fellow, my colleague, the baker's dream correctly. Now, Joe Farrell tells them, oh, bring him out. And sure enough, they bring him out, they clean him up, they prepare him, and they bring him to Farrell. Now, before I get into the rest of the story, I want to point out something that was taught to me. Let's look at the dreams that Joseph had. He had two dreams with the same message and the dream that Pharaoh had, two dreams with the same message. So first of all, Joseph's dream is one is terrestrial and one is celestial. One is bundles of hay and wheat and one is stars, the moon and the sun. Let's talk about Pharaoh's dreams. They're both terrestrial, cows and stalks. Then I want to point out something else interesting. In Joseph's dream, the terrestrial dream, he has bundles of hay, straw, wheat, while Pharaoh in his dream has one stalk for each. So Joseph has seven bundles, I'm sorry, uh, 11 bundles for his brothers and 12 bundles in his included. And, Je and Pharaoh has seven stalks. So immediately we see what the difference is. Pharaoh lived his entire life. His pursuit was terrestrial. Number one, Joseph knows that as the verse in Shema says, 
you keep your heaven, your feet on the ground and your head in heaven. We cannot be all terrestrial. We cannot be all celestial. We need to have both the physical and the spiritual. Number two, when it does come to the terrestrial, Pharaoh's dream with the storks is in its singularity, every one of itself. Joseph's dream is all about bundles. Joseph's dream is all about unity, even in the terrestrial, even in our physical pursuits. It's not each man to his own, but one for all and all for one. So already just by the metaphors that God chooses to use to pass the messages in the dreams, we see the difference of Joseph's paradigm in life and how he was brought up by his father, Jacob. And then we see Pharaoh's paradigm in life and what was his focus. And now let's go on with the story. So if you read the verses, the verses repeats, Pharaoh repeats his dream. So first the verses tell us the dream as they're happening. And then it has Pharaoh repeating the dreams. Why? Why couldn't just the one verse? And, Je and Je Pharaoh told Joseph his two dreams. So if you pay attention to the verses, you'll realize that Pharaoh is not telling over his dream correctly. He's leaving out a detail. He's doing this. And why all of this? Because he's testing Joseph. Hence, when Joseph starts interpreting the dream, you'll see as Joseph lists what different parts of the dreams mean, he actually corrects the stuff that Pharaoh mistold him. And then he tells him that the seven the number seven eludes to seven years. There's going to be seven good years, seven fat years, seven years of abundance that are going to be followed by seven years of famine. And because the famine is going to be so harsh that it's going to swallow up all the abundance of the past seven years and leave no memory of it. Hence, when the skinny cows the beaten stalks swallow the fat cows and the fat stalks, they don't gain weight. And then he tells Pharaoh, and why did God tell, repeat the dream twice? Because that is God telling you that he's not waiting to do this. He is doing this immediately. And then Joseph goes on to tell Pharaoh that obviously the reason why God is telling you this is so that you can prepare. And therefore, Joseph gives advice. And his advice is, have in the seven years of abundance, put away in storages, go ahead and prepare for the seven years of famine. Pharaoh accepts that this is the interpretation. And he says, and if there is anyone who can be in charge of this, who God is with him, it is you. And hence, he goes ahead and he appoints Joseph as the viceroy. Now, I left out an important detail that I'm going to tell you is important for what we're going to talk about at the end. Joseph, when Pharaoh tells Joseph, I hear that you interpret dreams, Joseph says, not me. It is God who interprets dreams. 
and God will give me the knowledge. Very important what's going on here. Okay, so that's what ends up happening. Now, parenthetically speaking, I want to fast forward you into two weeks from now when Jacob does come to, to Egypt and Jacob comes in the second year of the hunger. And at that time, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And because Jacob came to Egypt and Jacob blessed Pharaoh, it ended the years of famine. So just that you know, while the dream said it was going to be seven years of famine, because of Jacob, it was only two years of famine. So I just wanted to give you the end of the story while we're talking about the interpretation. Okay, there's the fat years and Joseph is collecting and collecting and collecting and he's putting everything away. Now, Pharaoh arranges a match for Joseph. Who should be Joseph's wife? Lo and behold, it was the daughter of Potiphar's wife, the woman who caused all that anguish to Joseph by trying to be with him sexually and ended up turning around the story and Joseph was accused and put into prison. Now, I do want to tell you it was not her biological daughter. It was her adopted daughter. Hence, our sages say, and I shared this with you last week, that the wife, the mistress of the house in which Joseph was a slave, she was not acting out of lust and out of evil intentions. Rather, our sages tell us that she saw in the stars that there was to be an offspring coming from her lineage and Joseph. Hence, she was trying to make destiny happen. What she did not see was that it wasn't her, it was her daughter. And again, it was her adopted daughter. Now, with that being said, let me tell you who this girl really is. So the Torah tells us that her name was Asnat. Who is she? You will recall that when Jacob and his family were traveling and they arrived in Shechem, when they were coming back from Laban's house and they arrived in Shechem, Jacob's daughter, Dina, was raped by the prince Shechem, the son of Hamor. And what happens there? So you remember the story, the two brothers devise a plan and they wipe out the whole city. However, Dina got pregnant from that rape. And when that girl gets born and grows up and she realizes that her father is not the husband of his mother, who is Shimon. Shimon's the one that married her. Therefore, she left and went on her own. She ends up in Egypt, and there she ends up being adopted by the mistress of the house in which um, Joseph was a slave. Now, our sages tell us a little bit of a story 
And I just want you to know that if you follow the biblical stories, you will see that some of the most famous fiction books are all built on these stories of the Torah. Just for an example, the story about Arthur pulling the sword out of a rock, it's straight in the Torah about Moses pulling out the staff from the backyard of his father-in-law Yisro that no one else was able to. So there's also this famous stories how family was separated, but they had a heirloom that belonged to the family. Each one had a piece of a necklace or a bracelet. And, and that's how the family gets united. Well, here's a little inside tip. That's the story of Joseph and his niece. That's who it was. It was a half niece. Now, what happens is that when Joseph would travel, so the girls would line up because they all knew that he's going to have to marry someone. So they all wanted to be that one. And it says that they were so taken by Joseph's beauty that when Joseph's chariot was, was traveling, the girls to catch his attention would throw jewelry into the chariot. And all of a sudden, Joseph looks down and sees in the chariot a specific jewelry, which was their family's heirloom. So she goes ahead, and he goes ahead and starts investigating who this came from, found out it's from Osnat, and he was the one that arranged through suggestive conversation that Pharaoh should pick her for his wife, and so it was. So just that you know, Joseph was married to his niece. In other words, from his father's side, not his mother's side. His father, Jacob, had four wives. Joseph's mother was Rachel. Dina's mother was Leah. So they were half siblings. Dina's daughter was this girl that Joseph married. Now, Joseph has two children. And the two children are Menasha and Ephraim. And he says, why? Why did he call the name Menasha from the word Kinishani? Hashem has made me forget all my suffering. Meaning everything he went through as, as being sold by his brothers, being a slave, being a prisoner. And now look at him. The name Ephraim comes from the word Peru, which means to be fruitful which means that God, he thanked God for not only that he's no more in his suffering, but the abundance of fruitfulness that God showered upon him. The Rebbe of Blessed Memory points out that there is a very interesting lesson in what's going on here. Jews in exile have always had two focuses, and there always was this kind of dispute between the two focuses. One is saying that we need to remember where we come from. We have to hold on to the old-fashioned tradition. The other part is saying we need to have progress. We didn't come into exile to survive. God would not have put us through this just to survive. God has put us through this so that we would be fruitful and multiply and gain things that we could not have gained were we never to be taken out of Israel. Now, I want to be very careful with what I'm saying 
because many non-kosher affiliations have focused on, you see, we got to be progressive. And their definition of being progressive was, you know, we got to change things. The kosher bit, today we have refrigeration. We don't have to worry about kosher. Um, this whole car thing, you know, Moses didn't have cars, so why can't we drive cars on Shabbat? And, you know, and we have to progress and, you know, cut it out with the kippah and the this stuff and the that stuff. God forbid that is not what I'm talking about. The progression that I'm talking about is to make use of everything that is available for us today that wasn't in the past in order to enhance our service to God. And a perfect example is what you and I are doing right now. You are sitting in your homes, sitting on a Zoom internet, and I am sitting in my home, and we are using Zoom to, to study Torah, to support each other, to be here for each other, bring a warmth and a smile to the Hanukkah holiday. That's what we're talking about. Now, I have clearly seen the elder generation, some already not here, I'm talking about my grandfather's generation, who their attitude was, eh, in Europe, we didn't use internet. We don't use internet. Or all those type of stuff. And there was actually a time when the Rebbe first had one of his Hasidim, Rabbi Joseph Weinberg, the Weinberger, to go ahead and give every Saturday night a Tanya class on the radio. Now, the Orthodox and Hasidic world went berserk because a radio is treif. It's non-kosher. It's not Jewish. It's secular. And what are you doing? You're getting people to listen to the radio. What are you bringing Torah, which is so holy, on the radio, which is so unholy? And the Rebbe answered, to look into the last teaching in the book of ethics of our fathers. And the last Mishnah says, everything that the Holy One, blessed be He, created, He created to be used for His glory. And the Rebbe then in that talk went on to say, all of you people that are complaining that your fathers never and your grandfathers never listened to the radio, did your grandfathers have ticker tapes in their house to follow the stock market? Did they go do the other stuff that you're doing to make money? No, but you're saying that God gave us the opportunity. We have to use it. So if you're saying that you have to use it for your own wealth, how much more so you have to use it for God's wealth. And hence, there is this progression this, not God forbid, in walking away from old-fashioned tradition and Torah. God forbid, tradition and Torah is timeless. It is eternal. But how we can go about it and how we can do these things, we should never say, eh, this is not a kosher, can do it, a platform for me to do Torah. I can only do business on it. No, uh, 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 not right. So we have these two parts that we have to hold on to tight in exile. And that is forget not where we have cut, come from and forget not who we are. That's the first one, Menashe, 
And the second one is Ephraim. Don't just survive. Surviving, one of the biggest challenges the Jewish people have always had was survival. And uh, there's a famous comedian by the name of Jackie Mason, who, mind you, his brother is still a rabbi, and he started off as an Orthodox rabbi, and then he became a comedian. To make the long story short, Jackie Mason says like this, if you want to win a Jew in a fight, give him a gun. And he said, why? Because Jews are survivors. You give us that type of power where we don't have to just survive and we're lost. And he was talking, he jokes around about Israel, you know, how, how long it took Israel to truly embrace that we're not here to survive no more. We're done with the survival bit. And that's what we're learning here. Never go through whatever you're going through just to survive. And I'm going to close up this topic and continue with the story by just quoting to you from the Talmud. The Talmud says, no person sows one measurement of seed to get back one measurement of produce. Rather, the reason a person works so hard on sowing one measurement of seeds is to get back many, many, many measurements of produce, which he now has so many more seeds to continue. So that's why we invest. No one invests to get back their capital just. That is a survivor mode, not a good thing. God didn't invest us into the entire globe just to bring us back as survivors. With that said, we move on. The seven years are over, and now the seven years of hunger is starting. And here, Joseph starts doing some real heavy business. First, he makes everyone pay for food. Then when they run out of money, he says, they tell him, we have no more money. We're going to die. Feed us. He says, okay, you gave all your money to Pharaoh. Joseph wasn't doing business for himself. He was a true viceroy. All the money that he made, he, gave, he was making for Pharaoh's, for the royal coffers just like he did when he, had, he was a slave. He didn't make money for himself. He worked hard to make his master make money. And then he tells them, oh, okay, you ran out of money, no problem. Sell Pharaoh your land. You give me land, I'll give you, I'll give you um, food. And then they said, okay, we're done. We have no livestock, we have no money, we have no land. What now? And that's when Jacob said, sell yourselves as slaves to Pharaoh. And they said, okay. And then what Joseph did, in order to make sure that they realized that he wasn't being poetic, he moved everyone around. People that lived in this neighborhood, he moved to the other side of the state. And to let them know, it's not a joke. You and your land and all your belongings belong to Pharaoh. You have sold everything to Pharaoh. And then he goes ahead and he says, and therefore... I am now letting you plow your fields. I'm, I'm going to give you seeds to sow your fields as the famine ends. However, you should know that four-fifths of your produce you will keep and one-fifth of your produce will always go to Pharaoh to know that he is the owner of the lands. And the only one, the verse says, the only one he did not do this to was to the priests. 
he knew that the men of the clergy leave them alone. And that's the story. Now, I wanted to share with you an interesting verse before we get into the story of what's going on with Jacob and his children. So what happens is that when they come to Joseph, Joseph told them, if you want for me to give you food, you're all going to have to circumcise yourself. And they all went berserk. And they went to Pharaoh and said, forget Joseph, Pharaoh's in charge. And Pharaoh told them, don't come to me, go to Joseph. And they said, what Joseph is, is telling us to circumcise himself. That's ridiculous. And he says, well, you all knew there's going to be seven famine years. Why didn't you all prepare? And he says, we did all prepare. But for somehow, our stuff got spoiled. So we're stuck now needing Joseph. So he said, ah, so you see that God is with Joseph. So best listen to him. We're going to talk about that later on too. Now, I want to just parenthetically give you my own thoughts. So the verses talk about Egypt from the times of Abraham as being the most sexually perverse people in those days. Now, according to the teachings, circumcision for a Jew has no reason. It's simply God said so. However, our sages tell us that circumcision has its effect that it weakens the obsession and the desire of sex. So understanding what Joseph is doing, and we're going to talk about all of this, Joseph is taking the people that are known to be the most obsessive and perverse in their sexuality and telling them that they have to circumcise themselves. So that's an interesting thing. And again, we're going to talk about all of this soon. Now let's go on to what happens to Jacob. Jacob goes ahead and he sees that everyone is going to Egypt to get food. He tells his sons, why do you have to stand out? It is true that we still have enough to survive. But why does everyone have to say, oh, look at them. They're not going down. We all have to travel from Palestine down to, down to um, it wasn't actually Palestine. It was actually Canaan, the land of Canaan, all the way down to uh, Egypt. He says, don't stick out. You don't need to attract the evil eye. Go like everyone else. And then the verse says an interesting word. And Jacob saw that there is hope in Egypt. And here is the first time that God is giving him glimpses of there is still hope about Joseph. And he tells the, the boys to go down. Now, the verse is very interesting. It says that Jacob told his sons to go down. And the next verse doesn't say and the sons of Jacob went down, it actually says, Ache Yosef, the brothers of Joseph. And the question is, why? Why are they being all of a sudden called the brothers of Joseph? And Rashi tells us, this shows us that they did do repentance. They did take upon themselves that they're going down to Egypt for two reasons. Their father thinks they're only going for food, but they're going to look for Joseph. And no matter what it takes and what price it's going to be, they're buying back Joseph. Hence, the Torah testifies that at that moment, 
they were the brothers of Joseph, the way brothers are supposed to be. And the verse says only 10 went down. Why? Because Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph is gone. Jacob says, I'm not sending Benjamin. It's the only offspring I have left from my wife, Rachel. And they come to Joseph, and Joseph sees them. And the verse says that Joseph recognizes them, and they don't recognize Joseph. And our sages want to know, what's the magic here? And it's very simple. Joseph left when he was 17 years old. So he didn't quite have a full-grown beard and be a full-grown mature man. So therefore, they did not recognize Joseph, but Joseph did recognize them. They were all older than Joseph, and they were already fully matured when they sold him. And Joseph sees them, and Joseph remembers the dream. And Joseph starts doing stuff. And we need to understand what Joseph's doing. Joseph later says clearly that they have nothing to work out with him. Because as far as he's concerned, what happened to him is between him and God. They need to work out their issues that they sold their brother. That's between them and God. So Joseph didn't have a resentment issue. Joseph worked out his resentment. However, Joseph is putting them through the ringer. And why? Different interpretations. I'm going to just share with you one. Joseph had to make sure that they weren't the people that they were when they sold him. Hence, he's going to play around with them until he gets them to bring Benjamin. And then he's going to set up for Benjamin to be taken away from them. And then he's going to see how are they going to act then? Have they learned that brothers stick by brothers at all costs? Or are they still the same brothers that think it's okay to sell out a brother? That's the simple interpretation. Anyway, to make the story short, they go ahead and they tell Joseph, they tell, um, they tell, uh, Joseph tells them, you guys are spies. You're not here to buy food. He says, what are you saying? We're all children of one father. So then why does my registry show that you all entered into different gateways into Egypt? So they answered, because we're missing a brother and we're looking for him. And they said, and if you would find you would find him and he's a slave, what would you do? We'd buy him back. And if the guy would ask you for exuberant amount of money, he said we would buy him back. And if he would say that there's no money in the world that he's gonna sell your brother back to you. And that's when they answered, Judah answered, in the name of all the brothers, we have come to kill or to be killed. So Joseph said, so I am right. You're not here on peaceful terms. You're here for war. And then Joseph said, they're saying, no, it's not true. And they say, listen, we're 12 brothers. One is gone. One is home with our father because our father can't bear to be separated from him. He's the only full brother of the one that's gone. And we're here. He says, oh, that's the story. Okay, prove to me that you're not lying. Bring me that young boy. Bring me the son. And then he goes ahead and he says, and meanwhile, just to make sure that things are safe, I'm going to hold one of you prisoners. Now, why does he hold one of them prisoner? So you have to know who he took. He took Shimon. Do you remember last week I spoke to you about this, that the ones who are violent amongst the 12 brothers was Shimon and Levi. They're the ones that wiped out Shem. They're the ones that wanted to kill Joseph. 
And he knew that to leave these two brothers together is asking for trouble because their solution is going to be to go into violence against Egypt. So therefore he separated the two. He kept Shimon and he let Levi go back with the other brothers. What he does is he sells them food and then he tells his house, uh, whoever was in charge, put their money back into their bags. And so it is that they start heading home and all of a sudden they stop and the one wants to feed the, uh, the camels and or whatever they were riding and he takes down the hay and he finds in, in this bag the money. He tells his brother and all his brothers, they check their bags. They see that they each got back money and they said, okay, this is not good. This is not good because now we're going to be accused of stealing. They go home and they tell Jacob everything that happened. And they said, please, let us take Benjamin because Shimon is in prison. And, then, and Jacob says, no, Joseph was killed. And now you're asking me to let Benjamin go. I'm not going to do that. And they start pleading with him. And Judah says, let the old man get hungry. In other words, what he's saying is, why are we fighting with him? Let's just keep on. We'll run out of food. And then he'll ask us to go. And then we'll tell him, we can't go unless we have Benjamin. That's what the man said. And that's what happens. They go ahead and they end up eating up the food and everything. And then Jacob says, go back to Egypt. And Judah says, but you know, we can't go back to Egypt unless we have Benjamin. And Jacob says, why? Why did you have to do this to me? Why do you have to even tell him about Benjamin? And Judah says, how are we supposed to know what's going to happen? He was accusing us. So we were just telling him our story. That's it from A to Z, just telling him our story. Who, who would think that he's going to say that go bring Benjamin? And Jacob sees he has no choice. And Jacob and Judah says to him, I promise to you in this world and in the next world that I will bring back Benjamin. And that's why you'll see next week the one that steps forward and threatens Joseph is Judah. And he says, I have the most invested here. So I am not going to let this go down. Anyway, he comes back. They, they see the people are bringing them again to Joseph. And immediately one of Joseph's uh, people at a house tells him that you're supposed to come to Joseph's private estate. And they're like, okay, here it goes. Here we're going to be accused of stealing. The money was in our bags. And they immediately take out the money and they give it to him. He says, listen, we don't know how this happened. You know, we paid. The money ended up back in our bags, plus we bought new money. And the guy answers, if the money was in your bags, then so God has willed it. And they end up going, and they're reunited with Shimon. And Shimon tells them something very funny is going on. He put me in prison until you left. The minute you left, he took me out of prison and treated me like a guest, not like a prisoner. Anyway, they come, and they come to Joseph and Joseph sees Benjamin, and he starts getting emotional. He has to step out, fight back his emotions, and come back. And he had a conversation with Benjamin. And he talks to Benjamin, and Benjamin says, I have 10 kids. And he says, what are their names? And he starts telling them the names. He says, why did you pick these names? He says, they're all named after my brother who went missing on me. And he, he explains each one of the names. And that's when Joseph started getting emotional, realizing that after 22 years, he was not forgotten. And on the contrary, 
his, his brother, his whole brother, lives his whole life in dedication to his brother Joseph. Anyway, he goes ahead and says, you'll be having dinner with me tonight. And he goes ahead and he prepares. And because in Egypt at the time, animals were considered a deity, and because he was going to eat meat with his brother, brothers, he actually had to separate everyone else from the house, from him and his brothers. And then he tells Benjamin, you're, 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 you have a mother. No, my mother died. And you have a brother. Yes, but he's not here. So he said, then sit with me. I too have no mother and I too have been separated from my brother. And then the brothers are getting very confused because Joseph is playing as a saucer. He's knocking on this one silver goblet and he's saying, aha, the oldest one, the name is Ruven, have a seat here. And they're wondering, how does he know their age? How does he know what's going on with them? How does he know that when he tells them, I see that two of you wiped out an entire city, what's going on here? They know that this sorcery is all hogwash. What is really going on? And that's what happens. At the end, Joseph couldn't eat. He gave all this food to Benjamin and gave him gifts upon gifts. And then he says, and now go, go in peace. And he goes ahead. All the brothers are all okay. Here he was mean to us. Here he's nice to us. They all get ready to go. And Joseph tells one of the house members, hide my silver goblet in the belongings of the youngest son. And that's what they do. And then they, the brothers leave. And all of a sudden, Joseph tells the guy, go chase them, accuse them of stealing my goblet, and bring them back and find the goblet. And that's what happens. And they said, what? why do you think we would be stealing? The money that we had, we gave back. Why would we steal the goblet? And he says, you guys stole, and that was the wrong thing to do after my master was so kind to you. And Judah says, so be it. We, the one who it's found by will die, and the rest of us will be slaves. Because Joseph was sure that none of his brothers stole it. And sure enough, they found it in Benjamin, and all of a sudden, the brothers are realizing, okay, this is not good. This is not good, the turn of events. And then was the first time that they realized something peculiar. The fact that we are being put through trouble, we deserve it. We sold our brother. However, Benjamin is not part of that story. Benjamin was not part of this whole story. Why, did the God, why is it turning out against him? And the Torah, finish, the Torah portion finishes that they all go back to face Joseph. And next week is going to be the showdown when they face Joseph and Joseph is, uh, accuses them of stealing. Now let's just have a short, it's 9.30, so let's be very brief. Just an insight. Why the drama? Why all these stories and stories and stories? God told Abraham that they're going to be slaves, so why not just take Jacob, tell Jacob, go down to Egypt, be in Egypt, and that's it. And then Pharaoh turns against them, and the story goes on. Why the whole tra-la-la-la-la, 22 years, Joseph goes down there, separated, all this stuff, back and forth. He's a slave, and then he rises up. He is a prisoner, and then he rises up. And now he's the viceroy of Egypt, and now he's, he's, he's in command of everything in Egypt. What is going on here? And the answer is what I shared with you before. Our story 
in exile is not just about we were banished because of our sins. Rather, our Talmud tells us that we were sent into exile to gather sparks, human sparks, which, which would be conversion, physical sparks would mean transforming your belongings into holiness and service to God, having a mezuzah on your door, having a, a kosher kitchen, um, having a shul, having a mikvah, having all these stuff transfer the physical into the spiritual, and then you're elevating the sparks in the physical. That's what it's all about. And that's why Kabbalah tells us on the words of our sages in Talmud, it says that the Jews left Egypt like a pond without fish. And what that means is that there was a pond full of godly sparks that weren't being used to serve God. And that is what Kabbalah says when it says, Ole imam rav, the simple interpretation is that when the Jews left, a multitude of the nations joined them. Erev Rav. However, Kabbalah says Rav equals 202. The Jews elevated and took out of Egypt 202 godly sparks that were embedded in the physical that needed to be freed and elevated and used in the service of God rather than in only self-centered pursuit. However, for this to happen, there had to first be an empowerment. Joseph's going down to Egypt. Joseph becoming the viceroy of Egypt. Joseph turning all of Egypt into slaves. Joseph having Egypt circumcised himself was all the legwork that was needed so that when the Jewish people are brought down to Egypt, they should be able to survive, sustain, and prosper. Hence, we understand that everything in our life, every journey in our life, is all about transforming the jungle into a garden. The opaque, the darkness, the, the self-centered, egocentric rebellion, into transparent. That's the reason why we're here. And I want to share with you how much this was drilled into me by my teachers. The teachers would tell me that the Baal Shem Tov would go places just to make a blessing, just to say words of Torah in that spot so that it can be elevated. However, I want you to know that this was so drilled into me that when I would make a wrong turn, the teaching would come to me, there is no such thing as a wrong turn. You're on the street for a reason. Now, obviously, I was about to make a U-turn and go back. So what was the reason? Before I made a U-turn, I would quickly say one verse of Psalms because something, there's a reason why I'm here. And that is the attitude of understanding what it's all about. However, we would never be able to do this if there wasn't first a, a righteous and saintly Joseph who's breaking ground for us. And that's what's going on in this story. 
That's why there wasn't the shortest distance between two points in a straight line, because was that to happen, we would not have had the power to accomplish what we had to accomplish in Egypt. Hence, this beautiful verse of Pharaoh telling the people, go to Joseph. What was he saying? What he was saying is that according to Kabbalah, every land has its ministering angel through which the sustenance of that land comes. The only, verb, the only land where it doesn't say about an angel, but rather the verse says, Ki for the eye of God is upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year is the land of Israel. Every other land goes through one of God's ministering angels. Thus, we understand the depths of what's happening here. When Pharaoh tells his people, don't come to me, go to Joseph, what he's saying is that Joseph created a transparency that don't come to me, who I work through the ministering angel, go to Joseph, because when Joseph's here living the life he's living, the eye of God is here, so we're getting directly from the hand of God. And with this, let us now just quickly understand what is going on in the Hanukkah story. One of the interesting parts of the Hanukkah story is that Judah, one of the sons of the Maccabees, He's the one that banged out in his shield the four letters, Mi Chamocha Bo'elim Hashem, which is the acronym. Mem Kav Beis Yud is the acronym for who is as mighty as you, O Lord. And that comes from a verse in Hosea. In other words, what Judah is saying is, we have no chance if all we fight is with the power of self-reliance. Rather, all of this is happening to us so that we should embrace that it is in the power of God that we walk and not in our own power. We have to do what we can do. We have to do all the work, but know that Micha Mocha Ba'elam Hashem, who is as mighty as you, O God, that is our mantra, that is our faith. And that is how we live our life. So in short, the point of the story is that while we do all the work we have to do, we should never convince ourselves that our faith lies in the hands of Wall Street, in the hands of Washington, in the hands of local stuff, business opportunities, no. Those are all just baskets which we make in order to receive the fruits of God. People, thank you. And I'm going to open up conversation for everyone.